Good morning. Or I say good morning because it's morning for me. Maybe it's afternoon or evening or night. So hello. Thanks for tuning into MakerCast, a podcast about the inner work of creatives from all walks and all places. I'm Morgan James Smith, host, producer, and this is episode 33. episodes back, identity, and way further beyond that, way back in episode 11, which was called Maintaining Freshness, I talked a lot about the importance of multiple modalities, keeping multiple pots on the stove, keeping things fresh and alive, so that when we hit a roadblock with one creative outlet, we don't get completely paralyzed. We're able to kind of do something that's a little bit lower stakes that we're less invested in to kind of keep that creative energy flowing and allow us to return to our main mode of expression. There was something I said throughout episode 31, but particularly at the end, and I wanted to make a distinction and kind of expound on it a little bit. What I said was, I'm a podcaster, period. And that was meant to serve as an example of the importance of standing firm in our identities. And just to reiterate the the mental state of viewing identity as creatives as an offering and that we can't really offer much if we are unsure in our footing but aren't there two sides to every coin that certainly has been my experience and the second side to this identity coin that i want to talk about today is just the influx nature of the artist, of human beings. And it is simultaneously crucial that we stand firm in our identities and remain flexible. Before we get all into who we are or what we make or what we create or what we offer to the world, a great way of looking at this for me that I've been chewing on as I've prepared for this episode, but just looked at areas in my own life, has been to look at what makes me happy. And of course, I'll pose the question to you. What makes you happy? Now, when I think about what makes me happy, it's a lot easier for me to see over the course of of a lifetime just how volatile The answer is, you know, when I was five-ish, maybe four, one thing that really made me happy was to kind of open the door to my room in a couple different apartments that I lived in, and I would get into the bathroom, and I would get into the kitchen, and I would collect certain liquids, and I would come back into my bedroom or my closet, and I would... I would, I would get all scientists and I would start mixing liquids. And sometimes they would, mostly they would do nothing. Sometimes I'd overshoot the mark and they would overflow. And there are worse things to get on carpet than, than shampoo or conditioner. But in my mind, I was Albert Einstein saying to myself, 
imagination is more important than knowledge. And other times in that era, I had some little tiny, tiny little X-Men action figures. I had a Wolverine, I had a Magneto, and those two would, would stage the most epic battles, hopping from towers of books to slides made of construction paper cut out into baskets. Just take, you know, you probably already have, because that's how our minds work, but just take a few seconds to think about in that era, you know, age four to ten or something, what made you happy, four to eight. As I got older, I got really into playing video games and playing Mario 64 and GoldenEye, James Bond on the Nintendo and, you know, those missions and the killing and the adventure. And by the time I was 12 or 13, you know, if you've listened to the show before, you, you know that I got really into basketball. I'd already been playing, but it became more than just something I did on the playground at recess. You know, it was something I was playing hours a day and collecting basketball cards and writing letters to the different organizations of the NBA, asking for autographs and sometimes even getting a response. But there was a lot of focus, you know, for every autograph that I would get in return. And I had angles, you know, only write for the for the B-level or C-level players, ask for the rookies, never ask for the stars, ask for the autographs of long-since retired players that work in management. Maybe they'll give you an autograph on a, on a vintage photo. And for every letter I got back, I sent out 50 that went unanswered. And it just goes on and on. There was a time in my life where I lived to dance, where I lived to perform at open mics, where I lived to perform at my own shows, where I lived to sell CDs, where I lived to snowboard. There have been times in my life where the greatest joy comes from conquering a recipe that I could not figure out how the restaurants got it to taste the way they did and fail after fail after fail. I put the dish on the serving platter, I taste it, and bingo. This time last year, MakerCast didn't exist. And yet here I am, a couple episodes removed from saying, I'm a podcaster, period. Other elements have been in flux. Music has always been present, sometimes at the fore, sometimes not at all, sometimes shimmering lightly in the background. Sometimes it's been road cycling, sometimes it's been mountain biking, sometimes it's been hiking, sometimes it's long walks through neighborhoods, sometimes it's jogging, sometimes it's graphic novels, sometimes it's nonfiction, sometimes it's fiction, sometimes it's early morning, sometimes it's late nights. Sometimes it's bubble baths, sometimes it's quick showers. Sometimes it's certain friendships, sometimes it's others. I think, I hope, I've made my point. At the risk of too much silence, I want to invite you just to take a tiny bit longer in your own reflection, to just look back on your own life. My examples were specific to me, and if there was overlap, then you know, let's be friends, but your definitions of success, of well-being, of happiness, of gratification, 
likely have experienced a roller coaster similar to mine. It can be tempting to try to extrapolate meaning where there is none. But I think in this sense, as it relates to creativity, there's value just in simply acknowledging the variance as days accumulate in a life. So how does this serve me? There's an American dream that I was raised being peripherally aware of. I don't know if this will resonate with you, but it had something to do with staying with the same company for an entire career. Like the pride in whatever era that was, 1950s or, or even later, of, of the kind of working professional that stays with the same company and grows with the same company and is treated well and kind of gets to retire with, with recognition of their hard work and dedication. I, I don't think that's necessarily as prevalent today as it was back when I knew of it or idealized it. I'm sure it still exists. Part of that is just the security, the security of knowing where the paycheck is coming from, the security of knowing that as long as I continue to do this job well, I will be taken care of. The security in the identity sense of, from a vocational perspective, I know who I am. And the people in my world, in my small circle, kind of know me. They know what to expect, and that's comforting. To superimpose that on the life of a creative may help, it may help us uh, trudge through the tough times and stay connected to the path. But I can't help but see the potential pitfalls. And the main one that's really standing out to me is the absence of flexibility. Now, if I take my artistic endeavor, whatever it is, and I hold it to the standard of, of Joe or Jane, who worked 50 years at... Campbell's and retired and pension. And all of a sudden, my creativity needs to take a hard left. I can be met with fear because suddenly that left leads to the unknown. And to stay rigid in what has already been established feels safer. But if I look at creative expression less as this, less as work. That's a trick, man. It is work, but it's almost as if we have to relate to it, not as work, but instead relate to it through a lens which is similar to the lens through which we relate to that which makes us happy. Now, when it comes to happiness, when it comes to joy, when it comes to, you know, mixing bubble bath in your closet or pretending Wolverine can fly, it doesn't really matter how long that particular phase lasts. 
does it? Because we're in the moment. And it may last a long time, but it may simply serve its purpose. Now, I know that in a developmental sense, the changes are rapid in childhood, and that from a physical perspective, the changes slow down quite a bit. But I like to try to relate to my adult self with a similar level of breathing room that I might offer to a child. As children, we're really encouraged to explore, at least I hope, at least I was, thank goodness, encouraged to explore what makes us tick. In adulthood, we get more and more specialized to the point that not only does one person not know how to build a car, they don't even know what the final car looks like. They're just the window installer. We get so specialized that we're, we work in the sake of efficiency towards a greater whole. But it can be a little pigeonholing for a creative spirit like me, like you. So to allow for the, for the grown-up in us to tap in to the child within that gets to choose and gets to ask of the world what makes me happy or what form of creative expression best serves me and serves the world right now. And so it's a balance between assuming and standing strong in an identity as a creator, which of course needs parameters and labels, and staying open and receptive enough and flexible enough to let the creative muse mold me as the putty that I truly am. There have been a couple different episodes where I've said something to the effect of the art we create is not us and we are not it. And I could be reminded of that every single day. But to go just a tiny little bit deeper with it, to say this, we are not making the art. The act of creation, the making of the art is actually making us. In our world today, there is an emphasis, an extreme emphasis, and it's been accumulating for decades on outward recognition as the metric for success, as the metric for a job well done or it didn't happen. Not your experience was so deep and transformative or it didn't happen. What a difference that would be if that was our metric. I want to talk about my experience as a potter with my hands in clay. I want to talk about it from two angles as an example of the different ways in which we can measure art's impact. The first way is the widespread socially accepted lens. In January or February of 2019, I stepped into an open clay studio 
and immediately felt the pull of the clay of the molecules of the wheel. I was hooked. As I learned to throw forms, I sought instruction. The first class that I enrolled in met four days a week for between three and four hours. It was a beginner's class. When that class ended, there was a one-hour break, and then an intermediate class met for three to four hours. I stayed for both. So I would arrive in the studio at 9 a.m., and I would be cleaning up the last person to clean up pushing the instructor's patience, but also feeding that joy of having found another person who understands the power of clay. And by 5.30 p.m., I would leave exhausted four days a week. There were also open lab times, and during that time, I'd be in there practicing, 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 learning from the other potters. By the end of the summer of 2019, I was more comfortable than ever and in the fall of that year, I participated in my first sale, and I sold way more than I expected. The money in my hand, I realized that having functional pottery to sell was just another way of connecting with people. And before I knew it, I was selling pottery to people I would just meet on the street. I was selling pottery to people that I played volleyball with, people that I knew peripherally, family members. I started an Etsy shop. I was shipping off pots to different places in the United States. I started an Instagram. I started posting photos and videos and getting some, some of my videos would get like a thousand views in the first day, which for me felt within this lens as a, as a, as a measurement of, of success. Before long, I was crafting lesson plans for six-week courses to teach. I was meeting up with uh, less experienced potters and giving private lessons. Now this feels... It feels... Feels pretty damn serious. Feels like, hey, maybe this guy uh, has found his thing. He should stick with this. He's doing well. He's experiencing financial success. Now this is me making the art and selling the art and teaching the art and profiting off my skill set, my ability to be an entrepreneur, to network, to market, to sell myself and to sell what I make. People are enjoying the cups and the bowls and the plates, but they're also enjoying feeling that they're supporting an artist that they know personally. And this is not the first time that I've had financial and material success in this regard. I think, I think I've driven the point home, I hope. If that was all I saw, it would be very hard to let pottery go. It would be very hard to take a break. It would be very hard to sit with my limitations and gently progress through them without feeling frustrated in areas where my progress was lacking. Now we're talking about identity, and I want to reverse back to that same time, January, February of 2019, instead of saying, I make the art, I want to tell the same story, how the art made me. In late December of 2018, 
my partner and I decided to leave Portland. We didn't know where we wanted to go. We tried a few different smaller towns in Oregon, but nothing really clicked. To the point that, for many months, we were kind of just homeless, bouncing around, unsure of where we wanted to land. We'd taken a leap of faith. We fell in love with Bend, Oregon, but our apartment wasn't available until March 12th. And so in the interim, we stayed on the Oregon coast. But during that time, I wasn't working, I didn't have much money, and I didn't know anyone out there. And my partner said to me, I want to try going to an open clay studio. And I said, okay, I'll come. And when I walked in, the community of people there who were working on their projects was so welcoming. And having left two months prior, all the people I knew in Portland, all my different communities, it felt like a warm hug. And I had a place where I could sit for four hours and kind of struggle through making a handle for a behemoth of a cup that I ended up never finishing because it was so thick and so wet that it really couldn't ever dry before it cracked. But I got to chat with the people and it was just a sense of belonging for me. And while it didn't take for my partner, I found myself during our time on the coast returning and returning. For the feeling of the clay, yes, but for the sense of community, the same faces, the welcoming artists. When I signed up for that first class, after we'd moved to Bend in the summer of 2019, the one where I was there from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., this was around the same time that I found out that my father had been diagnosed with a cholangiocarcinoma, a bile duct cancer. And at the time, we had reason to believe that it could be life-ending. There were two reasons why I was in that pottery studio so much that summer, learning at a rapid rate. One was that it was a safe space. To be around other artists, you know, sitting next to me, knees almost touching, sitting at our wheels, and it gave me the chance to just focus on something that I could control, which was getting better at centering that clay not getting water everywhere, trying to keep the clay off my nose and face and mouth, and to pull those walls up taller and taller and taller as I worked towards my anonymous form, the cylinder, from which so many shapes in pottery come from. I needed somewhere to go, where I could be safe, where I could process my emotions about my father's illness on a subconscious level, without having to stare it directly in the face, which was too overwhelming for me. The second reason that I was there from 8.39 to 5 was because many of the days I had to miss as I took 11, 12 trips to either Southern Oregon or Portland to attend oncology appointments and be there for the 13-hour procedure to remove the grapefruit-sized tumor. So I was making up class time. As my dad recovered, started his chemotherapy, and ended up returning to incredible health, which for me was against all odds, I had found myself an identity as a potter and a way to make some money. But the truth is, is that during one of the most difficult times in my life, art, again, and again, and again, was there for me. 
I don't know how or if I could have moved through that and been available to support my family in the way that was needed without an unreasonable sense of investment in how the color of a glaze might turn out. The feeling that my pieces were of utmost importance occupied my mind in a way that allowed me to move through that difficult time. I need art to thrive, to survive, and then to thrive in this, in this life, in this world, during highs and lows. And I think we all do as creatives. I'm sure there are people that don't need art. And in, at times I envy them, and at times I'm pretty, pretty grateful to be a creative to look at my journey through clay as an example, or to look at your own journey of similar ilk through a one-sided lens is too limiting because it fixes us in a role that needs to stay fluid so that we can continue to be changed by art, so that we can continue to allow art to work through us in exactly the way that we need given whatever external circumstance is taking place. So at the end of episode 31, when I said, I'm a podcaster, period. I'm a podcaster, period, for today. Now this podcast came about similarly. When was my first episode released? March 18th. How many days had I been in, in lockdown at that time? Five, it stemmed from, from a, a deep desire to connect with other people. I was feeling lonely. I didn't know how to reach out to people I barely knew or complete strangers and say, Hi, can we talk for an hour and I'll record it and mostly listen? I didn't know how to communicate that need, but, but the umbrella of MakerCast helped me. It was an aid in my innate desire to stay connected to the world around me through the phone, through audio, through voice. And so it can look maybe from the outside like ambition. It can look like a desire to up the number of patrons on Patreon and make podcasting a sustainable uh, side hustle. I love that term. I, I love hate that term. Okay, I hate that term. Because side hustle denigrates the depth of what we do. But really, it was just a broadcast asking for support. The interviews, a chance to just talk to somebody else. And the monologues were then and are today an opportunity to process so that I can move through 
whatever it is that's heavy on my chest during a year unlike any year that I've ever lived through, that we've ever lived through. But I think in March, had I been a little too clingy to I'm a potter, period, even though I needed to stand firm in that identity as I represented myself selling my work and offering to teach, had I been too fixed, there wouldn't have been space for the vision of MakerCast to be born. And what's next if I can relax and release the, the death grip? What's next for me? What's next for you? When that hard left in our creativity comes, my hope for myself and my hope for you is that there is enough perspective and fluidity and flexibility in our relation to the creative process that we can take that turn so that we can allow art to make us into exactly who we need to be to face the situations that life will continually throw in our direction. And so for me, working an exercise of getting out of the way to you out there, wherever you are, keep making and keep allowing yourself to be made. This episode of MakerCast was recorded and produced right here in beautiful Bend, Oregon. Music for this episode can be found in the show notes. If you'd like to support the ongoing creation of this show, tell a friend, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, or visit patreon.com slash MakerCast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode.